We are singular, we are unique, we are wonderful, and we are all going to die. Jesus Christ, Doc, you disintegrated Einstein. Disintegrated Einstein. Einstein. Welcome to Science at the Movies, a podcast that looks at the role of science in some of our best loved and most hated movies. I'm Frida. I'm Abby. And this week's movie is Don't Look Up. It's on Netflix. I don't know why I felt the need to say that. Cut that immediately. What am I talking about? What's wrong with me? Hey, Frida. How are you? Hi, Abby. (laughs) I'm pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. How's your week? How's your science week? Well, I'll tell you how my science... This was my science week. I told you offline, well, off the... You know what I mean, that I had a bit of a week. Listen to this. Off air? Off air. So I have this fancy computer. I had a fancy computer at my desk, which you know about, but I haven't been at my desk. So ultimately, I got a fancy laptop and I got a gamer laptop because my area is... Deep learning, AI, blah, 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 blah. So um, I've got this laptop now and I'm coming to the point where I've got my deep learning networks and I'm training. And if people don't know out there, we use the gaming laptops because gaming laptops have graphic processing units, GPUs, which are kind of necessary to train deep learning models because of the amount of data that it's processing. GPUs, but of course you can't just use GPUs by pressing a button. You have to write your code in order to use the GPUs and you have to install certain libraries and blah, blah, blah. And anyway, it wasn't working. No matter what I did, no matter what I did, my computer was like not enough GPU for what you're doing. Out of memory, out of memory, out of memory. This problem actually was following me around at the end of last year. And I signed off for Christmas break and I was like, fuck it, I'll deal with it next year. So I come, down, I come back to work this year, had a couple paper things to finish off. I was like, cool, back to my project. Where was I? Oh yeah, this out of memory problem. The problem, <laughs> this, what ended up being, the problem was this. I was accidentally recording my screen the whole time. <gasps> recording my gameplay as it's known because I'm in a gaming computer (laughs) and I was trying to use the like screen capture to do some tutorials for some research assistance on how to do some things accidentally unwittingly unknowingly had been recorded recording my entire gameplay for months (laughs) using up a lot of processing processing units (laughs) And so what I'm trying to do my work and it's saying out of memory and that was what the problem was. And that (laughs) combined with me using two 4K external monitors as well, like unplugging the monitors and stopping to record myself and voila, suddenly everything started to work. It took me two (laughs) whole days to get to the bottom of what the fuck. Like that was this week was me being like, I'll troubleshoot this and finding out that that was the reason. And and unfortunately, it was my first day back in the office after being at home. So this was witnessed by my colleague who witnessed the stupidity, of the insane in over her headness of Frida 
with deep learning. And that was my week. That was my week. Ah. God. Good job. Frida, taking on the hard science challenges, meeting them head on, solving the issues as they're happening. Oh my God. The sorrow. That was my way. Fuck. Do you know I got four out of a hundred on computing in first year engineering? Jesus Christ. The four was because I did the library test that just gave you an additional four marks. Oh my God. That's what I feel about computers. So why am I doing this? Why? I, Why? Sometimes I do. Yeah, I'm like, I, I'm at work sometimes. And I'm just like, stop. Kill me, stop. please. <laughs> just drag a, a knife across my throat. I hate all of it. I hate everything. I don't want to do this. <laughs> just let me go down to the lab and turn on the laser. I did that this week. Yeah. I turned on the laser for the first time. Ah, muzzle tough. And as soon as I put the parameter in front of it, smoke started coming up. And it was like, oh, we won't be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Okay, shall we get? Shall we talk about this movie then? Yeah. <laughs> Frida sounds super pumped. <laughs> All right. Okay. 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 Here's my summary. <laughs> Don't look up is by design a commentary on the climate crisis and the challenges of science communication. PhD candidate Dibiaski and her fingerless gloves, ignoring the need for butter on toast like a total mad woman, is surveying the sky and listening to rap, as all good astronomers do, or all good grad students anyway. Suddenly, she discovers a comet, which is awesome because you get to name it, but then completely terrible because it turns out it's a motherfucking planet killer. Her advisor, Professor Mindy, is shook. I mean, he hasn't done orbital dynamics since grad school, so he must definitely be wrong. But a quick chat with the Kennedy Space Center and the head of Planetary Defense Department at NASA, and it turns out we're all going to die. Cue a rush to the White House, where a far too realistic scenario if Trump was still in office, or if President Selena Meyer were a real person. The science is a bit too mathy for them, so they're just going to sit tight and assess. Get some Ivy Leaguers on this, you know. No offence. Mindy becomes an AILF, while Case just can't take the bullshit and begins to crack. Once some juicy gossip puts Prez Orlene on the downturn for the midterms, it's time to get on with the scientists. She can't lose Congress after all, and we head for an Armageddon world-saving climax. Enter Peter Isherwell, Bash, and the untested concept of asteroid mining. Welcome to the I Don't Give a Shit show, led by Janie and the Incompetents. Mindy, Kate and Teddy try and try again to get the world to understand the gravity of the situation. But the truth is, it's just too late. Mm. Where do you want to be when the world ends? (sighs) Yeah. Okay, Frida, how do we feel? I have not been able to gauge anything from your comments so far as to how you feel about this movie. Okay, well, how do I feel about the movie is that it is like a massive mallet being smashed on concrete and then slowly being dragged across the concrete. It's just how heavy it was at... yeah delivering the message 
And also just, you know, Meryl Streep and sort of these Hollywood people, um, you know. Also, I heard a funny thing, which was that Trump is so hilarious. Like Trump himself is such a satire that satirizing Trump, Trump is almost like it's really hard to be funnier than the real thing which almost feels like a satire so when we've lived through all of that we've lived it nothing could beat how entertaining it was if it wasn't so horrifying so it's sort of interesting and very very difficult to do I thought that it was traumatic I was traumatized it was heavy there were a lot of like fun funny things in it and interesting topics that came up but in the whole it was like oh oh Right. That's what I felt. Okay. <laughs> How did you feel? I still don't know if you liked it or not. Um, Do you know if you liked it or not? I don't know if I liked it okay. or not. I don't know. Um, I, I, I loved it. Yeah. Okay, cool. It's immediately, I think, probably one of my top favorite movies of all time. Woo! <laughs> I've watched it twice now and I've cried both times watching it. I definitely cried. Uh, I wailed. Mm. Um, yeah. I wailed. I, actually, I rewatched it yesterday and I did. Like, there was one part I just started sobbing. Like, fully sobbing. I wailed. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's a moment there's a moment in it particularly for me and it's the moment when the tone of the movie completely changes and it's when Dibiaski is on the roof and she sees it and then Mindy's in the car and he gets out of the car and he sees it and he's on the street and for the whole rest of the movie it's just a totally different tone and I felt emotion like every second mm-hmm. of the rest of the movie. I was on the verge of tears the whole rest of it. I was just like this is affecting me so deeply. Yeah. That I I can't handle it right now. Yeah. Okay, I'm, and I also, I was, a, I mean, the end of the film for me um, was very affecting as well because I know this already. Like, I've come to this conclusion myself. Like, yeah. what matters, what's important. I was very emotional because I was very emotional with him coming back to his family um, because... Yeah, I well, obvious reasons, I suppose. But it really, it it. I texted you after that. I had to calm yeah. myself. I had to. I had to do a free to hot shower, which is sometimes the only oh. thing that can calm this girl down is to stand under yes. a hot shower. Because I was pretty distressed by it. But I was like, I went after. I was like, I li- I can say I live my life to the fullest. I already do it. Because I know that we're yeah. powerless and we yeah. have a responsibility to live as much as we can and to love people around us as much as we can because that is the best thing that life has to give and then we're lucky and you know what? Anything can happen at any point in life. People get sick, people die, horrible things happen constantly, all the time. Climate change, no climate change. Comet, no comet. We have to be there for the people yeah. that, uh, that love us and that's it. it was, and the message was strong and beautiful. It, that's my favorite scene that that dinner table scene at the end it's so beautifully yeah. done it's so emotional mm-hmm. I think it's uh, every person in that room on that table at that moment I just saw did an ex- excellent job 
for that scene I loved it yeah it's great there's just all these tiny little moments of there's like a moment where like Mindy puts a hand on his son's shoulder and just the look from the son and it just breaks your heart and then it like it cuts just every little cut away thing and the the little jumping back and forth kind of bits of it yeah I just bawling 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 Um, okay so you mentioned climate change there so let's let's talk about this for a second because one one thing is that um some critics are saying that it's too obvious a climate crisis metaphor and that just fucks me off (laughs) just like what the fuck is too obvious i'm sorry just like just do better with your critics um anyway i read an article in the guardian by a climate scientist named peter kalmas and he basically just said that that says more about the critic than the movie because to him as a climate scientist it's funny and it's terrifying because it conveys a certain cold truth that climate scientists and others who understand the full depth of the climate emergency are living every day yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's... how do you feel about the the climate the climate metaphor like i don't want to talk about it in no, the science yeah, of not... the movie or anything further because it's yeah. not that's not what the, the story of the movie is yeah. but we do understand we understand that like certain cast members particularly Leonardo DiCaprio will have been drawn to this movie for that specific oh, yeah, reason yeah. Leo's open Le- Le- Leo that's what he does Jonah Hill as well Meryl Streep yeah. of course as well so you know good on them and they're, they're producing something that's their language is film so that's that's how they're delivering the message I yeah it, it to me, it's heart-wrenching. I sort of look back, you know, growing up and learning about the greenhouse effect and being told these things. And when I look at people like Bernie Sanders and you see him, you know, in the 70s, warning. Mm. And and it's it, it and then you know how the 80s and 90s kind of went. And it's heart-wrenching. Um, the unstoppable force of uh, capitalism. Um, and what can you do? It's amazing. And yeah, I, I just, it was a good metaphor for this sort of helplessness um, and the obviousness yeah. of it all and sort of being like, I don't understand. Don't you want to live? Don't you, don't you want? Like, I don't understand. And it's, yeah, it's, it's, it is, it, it, yeah, what can I say? I mean, like, it's just the way our society lives now. It's the things that mm, interest people yes. and people feed into it because, as you said, like the capitalism of it, at the end of the day, people want to sell stuff. So the people who want to sell stuff will do everything they can to ensure that they're getting clickbaits and and that they're getting your attention. And we're talking about this as part of our documentary series, like later on at the end when we get to the social dilemma. I did actually find, I think this entire movie had so much connection to the actual series that we did about documentaries um, this time round, And I think there's a lot of links throughout mm. it. I've, uh, yeah, I'm we, very we proud of about. that. I, I'm very proud of our mm. documentary series and I hope everyone watches I it. As well. And I agree, it's the, to- it's the lowering the standard of society in regards to people's ability to think critically and to understand mm. evidence-based uh, solutions because we are being driven by commerce and by finance, not by innovation, science and technology. All innovation has been co-opted by capitalism and you see the cheapness, Mm -hmm. we'll talk about it later, but the cheapness of all of that. But I really feel on the bottom of my heart that the standard of our society has been lowered. The value people place on critical thought and rigor, rigor (laughs) has been lowered. 
let's get let's start let's move on to the cast because yeah. adam mckay has said that one of the reasons the cast were so interested in doing this movie was because and i quote we're going to give in to the giant black hole question mark of our times what the fuck is going on and i really enjoyed that now in going through the cast i don't know how you feel about this i was going to leave leo jen and rob until later when we Great. talk about the scientists because mm-hmm. i feel like i have a lot to say about them yeah yeah sounds good okay so let's go in order of like introductions. So we'll start with the President of the United States, Janie Orlean and her Chief of Staff, a.k.a. son, Jason, played by Meryl Streep and Jonah Hill. How do we feel? Fine. I mean, they were doing very obvious stabs at Ivanka and Donald and they all deserve it. <laughs> also, like, you know, even um, there was that line. It's like, aren't you her son? What are you doing here? She's like, I'm the fucking Chief of Staff. They, they were great and they were funny, um, but it was, uh, you know, it was like, really heavy-handed and they're not as good as the real thing i'm sorry to say not nearly as well, entertaining yeah. as trump and Ivanka. <laughs> i think that's the thing that's what makes it almost so sad about it is just like the fact that they there are real characters of it it's so hard you're like this is a fictional movie but no there's it's a parody of real life this movie entire movie yeah. is a parody of real life and it's so painful it's painful I do want to say something about uh, what Jonah Hill said about his character. And this, this you have to have watched the Fire Festival documentary. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, my God. So basically <laughs> he said about his character, I thought, what if Fire Festival was a person and that person had power in the White House? <laughs> Jonah. Oh, God bless Jonah. I love Jonah Hill. I think he's a very interesting uh, actor oh, and a director fantastic. at the moment. He's a fascinating guy. Okay, so then we have the power duo of Happy News. Brie Eventy and Jack Bremer, played by Kate Blanchett and Tyler Perry. I did not recognize Kate Blanchett. It took me a few minutes. And then as soon as I recognized her, I was like, girl, you are just everything. Tyler Perry she as well. Is. He, Tyler Perry is such a legend, but you know when he when he just is an act, he acts. I'm like, oh, he's actually a great actor, because um, he's a, you know he's a filmmaker. He's he's like right amazing guy. But Kate Blanchett though, I love that she found magically depth to her character. I don't know how she mm. did it, but she really managed to find nuance in that character and make me like revere the character not just the actor and that is a testament to Kate Blanchett's talent I have nothing else to add okay perfect good she's amazing okay (laughs) okay so then we have Mark Rylance as Peter Isherwell the tech billionaire humanoid he's so good at these roles but I will say it like smacked so hard of his James Halliday from Ready Player One Mm -hmm. it was Mm-hmm. Almost the same character, yeah. but with like less noble desires. Oh. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I um didn't enjoy him like at all. Mm. Um, not for one second. Sorry, it that that was my worst part. Was just like because you you know how I feel about it. We'll talk about it later. But um, didn't enjoy it. Okay, cool. All right, themes. Let's talk themes. So. There are two things that I want to separate out when talking about the themes or the message or the intention of the movie. So firstly, we have the era of fake news, disinformation, conspiracy, mistrust of scientists. And to me, it holds this message about a world that is too full of information. Um, Having like the world of knowledge at your fingertips is incredible, but understanding how to master it is something else. And we are failing as a society to teach people how to navigate the world of free expression. And then secondly... The movie really hits home with the central message of don't look up as a metaphor for climate change, as we've mentioned previously. 
that it doesn't matter how many scientists provide you with papers and numbers telling you that a big rock is coming towards us until you can see it for yourself. It's not really happening. And even though the movie's intention is to highlight the climate change story, it goes so far beyond that for me because of all of the recent developments. Like this movie script, I think, was it was first draft written was before COVID happened. So like now we have the COVID vaccine and we also have like the flat earthers that we talked about last week and the recent Joe Rogan controversy that people will choose who and what to believe. And it is infuriating. But personally for me, what this movie did or more so what Jennifer Lawrence did and we'll talk about her character in a while was to put on the screen the thoughts that run through my mind daily and the reactions that I want to have because sometimes when I do look at the world and how we're dealing with everything I genuinely just want to scream yes I I have nothing to add to that yeah 100% correct yeah I agree I feel the same way I don't know what to do about it It's hard. It's hard to kind of like there's so many things. There's so many new things that have kind of happened as well. Just like looking at the madness. I think if this movie had come out pre-COVID, I don't know if it would have hit as hard as it did. But now that we look like all of this, like, you know, anti-vaxxers stuff. Yeah. All of just terrible. The, you know, no masks. You're like you're infringing on our human rights by having to wear masks and all like relating the stuff to really horrific things that have happened. It's just like, yeah, it's it's just just stupidity. And we we actually you remind me of our episode for 12 Monkeys. I listened to it again recently, actually. We spoke about the whole Cassandra, the idea of the chorus of the Cassandra is getting louder and louder and louder. Mm. And the, the chorus of the people that will just have to stand by in horror. Um, it just grows and grows and grows. And it's just human nature to, to not want to heed warnings. Um, and it's sad. And we've definitely talked about this uh, quite a lot together, you and I. And people are getting stupider there's no doubt about it and also just the the fact that everyone thinks they're a fucking scientist like we just posted the inventor thing and we had like a tiny little clip of us talking about sensitivity the definition and validation of tests talking a small technical discussion as scientists that we can have with our knowledge and our education and i was like reflecting on that right on how yeah. little people know what the fuck they're talking about. When they talk about science, they talk about vaccines, and they talk about the FDA, and they talk about all this shit. Most people have no fucking idea how any of this works or what anything means. Just trust the scientists for fuck's sake. We know what we're doing. We know what we're talking about. You don't know what you're doing. Yeah, do, I, I think the problem here is more it's... Everyone has the capacity to understand and this just this drops into later on's conversation, but everyone has the capacity to understand, but what they don't have is the capacity to I think it's like what you said about like rigor. It's like understanding the sources, criticizing the sources, looking for the information that is valid and and relevant and feeding through the bullshit. That's what the thing is. People just listen to what is said and they just go, well, this person said this. It's that too, but I also that, that, that it's an ever-changing, you know, many-headed monster. 
you know, scientific discovery and it evolves and it changes and it's fast. And that's the reality of it, you know. And so when you're in a quickly changing situation where new data comes in and opinions change, and it's not even that opinions change. It's like decisions get made. It, a critical thought is going on, which are coming. decisions are being made yeah. based on a critical thinking. And it's constantly changing. It's the hydra, you know. And people don't understand yeah. that aspect of it either. It's not like this is the thing. Oh, now this is the thing. They don't understand the, the process of conclusions and how they come to and how decisions are made. You know, you just right. have to trust the institutions and the representatives. I want to keep those thoughts in your mind, but we'll, we'll naturally come back into it later. Great. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move into the tropes. Trope of the week, Frida. Did we, did you want me to do a little jingle for you? Trope of the week, trope of the week, trope of the week. What's my trope? My trope is screaming Leonardo DiCaprio. That's what I've got. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love it. that scene. He is really good at screaming. He screams. He's been screaming since Titanic, practicing and practicing and practicing his scream until finally came to the right moment and all his screaming practice came to fruition. So I was like, you finally nailed it, Leo. He's been, he's been, yeah, he's been working up to this. His entire career has led to that moment. What's yours? Uh, Mine is uh, basically... It's I don't know how to describe it, but it's the Ron Perlman character. <laughs> Just that that fucking oh, like slightly terrible. fucked up uh, veteran who's like, but is the only one who can save the day. It's basically Randy Quaid in Independence Day. Yeah, yeah. Well, for sure. Well, for sure. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's just that guy. Although, but that was hilarious, though, when he said he's like all those hardworking white folks. Yeah, and how do the, the guys... <laughs> just like, the turn gays. it off, turn it off. Oh, those Indians, well, both types got together. Never, Didn't you guys ever thought of that? Yeah. Yeah, but it's hard to call it a trope because they were calling attention to the trope themselves. Yeah, I know. That's the, It is. It's. I found it difficult just in general looking for mm-hmm. tropes in the movie when it's it's all about that basically yeah. but it's yeah it was just kind of but it was i did still have a bit of an eye roll when he first came out i was just like oh, ron perlman obviously <laughs> uh okay so we're gonna get into some science chat some some big stuff okay i'm ready now before we get into like discussions around the performances and the themes that have been explored uh let's start with just a breakdown of the science that kicks it all off And there's already a bunch of articles that explain the accuracy of the science in the movie. And it's no wonder because they had a top class science consultant working on the movie. Professor Amy Mainzer, who is a professor of planetary science at University of Arizona and the principal investigator of the NASA NEOWISE mission. And now NEOWISE stands for Near Earth Object Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer. So her whole life is centered around asteroid hunting. And she guided the approach to the detection of the comment and the comment. She guided the approach to the detection of the comet. I can't say those words in sequence. (laughs) Um, As well as the portrayal of the scientists and the science communication, which we'll talk about later. So Professor Mindy and his group are conducting research into the expansion of the universe by studying supernovas using the Subaru Observatory on Mauna Kea in Hawaii. The movie opens with PhD candidate Kate DiBiaschi conducting surveys. And while looking at her data, she discovers a comet. 
unusual but not unrealistic. Professor Mindy and the other students join to celebrate and to try to work out the velocity and trajectory of the comet, which it turns out is on a collision course with Earth set to hit in six months and 14 days. So before I get into the background science, Frida, what are your thoughts on this whole opening sequence? Uh, just a small comment, which is that I like when she made her toast and she was sitting in the lab with her toast. There were like cables like in the toast, 100%. <laughs> <laughs> It just felt appropriately messy. The environment looked wonderfully normal and messy. And I just felt that that was a good moment to me. But I liked it. And I, um, I'm looking forward, if you can explain to me the maths sort of in a broad, broad strokes, that'd be awesome. Can you? Yeah, I can give a bit of it. So I, I was looking at I was just looking at like the things that they were saying. So more, I just kind of picked out a couple of terms that they used um, because I, I have not worked out exactly how you would calculate uh, but we've talked about trajectories many times before but there's a couple of things that he says so he says uh, he says the topocentric vector is rho we all rho is a Greek letter we all love the Greek alphabet scientists obsessed Why? with Greek alphabet anyway rho. a topocentric coordinate system uh, so it is the it gives the coordinates of a celestial body as measured from the surface of the earth so once they have the initial coordinates, they can calculate the orbit and then refer to the ephemeris, which is something that um, Kate says to give, or he says it actually, sorry, to give the distance between the comet and the Earth. What they're trying to do is they're trying to see how far away from Earth the comet will be when it passes by. And the ephemeris is a table that calculates the day-to-day -day prediction of the comet's position in the sky relative to Earth. So it's just this standard thing to do with celestial and astronomical bodies. Uh, it's the kind of things, the kind of like tables and charts that have been categorized mm. or like have been calculated and, and records that have been kept for like centuries. You know, it's basically yeah. people would look up in the sky and they would they look at basically what they look at is right ascension and declination, which is similar to talking about latitude and longitude. While they're doing that, so when he's writing that little table on the whiteboard, that's what the ephemeris is. Okay. All they're doing, as I said, the top eccentric coordinate system, they're calculating the position relative to the surface of the Earth, and it's getting lower and lower. They go down the table, predicting each day where the comet will be, and it's getting its position relative to Earth is getting smaller and smaller, which means it's getting closer and closer to Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah that's kind of how they are able to determine that it's on a collision course and then they're like okay it's it's going to hit earth how plausible Amazing. do you think this is how plausible do you think that the, the, the comet would pop up and then it's going to yeah. hit earth yeah implausible mm. tell me <gasps> let's first of all talk about asteroids and comets oh yeah totally when our solar system was formed 4.5 billion years ago. What happened was a dense interstellar cloud of gas and dust collapsed. It collapsed in on itself, which created our sun. And when this happened, it blasted material out across space. Some of it collided and gathered together under gravity to form our planets. And if you move out from the sun, we have the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. Beyond Mars, we have the asteroid belt. This is where the vast majority of asteroids in our solar system live. And then after this, we have the gaseous planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus and Neptune. And at the orbit of Neptune begins the Kuiper belt. 
Sorry, I have a coffee delivery. Stop rubbing it in my face, Abby. Thank you. I know. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> Got a train raft. <laughs> I know. It's just thinking that. Okay. At the orbit of Neptune, then begins the Kuiper Belt, which spans oh, like which spans about a thousand astronomical units. Now, just for for clarity, an astronomical unit is the distance from the sun to the Earth. So a thousand times that distance is how big the Kuiper Belt is. And it's on the edge of what's called the heliosphere. And the heliosphere is like the bubble of solar wind that surrounds our planets in the solar system. Mm-hmm. Beyond the Kuiper Belt, we have the Oort cloud, which is a vast region. All the objects so far are orbiting our sun on a flat disk. The Oort cloud is is a spherical shell surrounding the solar system and it's filled with space debris. Okay. Billions, maybe trillions of objects. Objects the size of mountains. (laughs) Now, observing the Kuiper Belt is something we're only just starting to be able to do, particularly with the New Horizons mission. But observing the Oort cloud is beyond our capabilities. What we do know is that these regions are where the comets live. And there are a few main differences between asteroids and comets. So an asteroid is a rock. It's in the rocky region of the solar system, so it's not loaded down with ice. It's relatively slow moving with an average velocity of around 25 kilometers per second. And because they live in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter, their orbits are fairly well understood. And around 90 to 95% of what we think exists has been found. So we can comfortably say that there are no asteroids that are a cause for concern, at least for a few, like, 100,000 years. Uh But comets. Comets. Comets come from the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud. And the main problem is that observing and detecting objects in the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud is not easy. So scientists have only been able to identify and track around 30 to 40% of objects with a size large enough to be a problem. And in contrast to an asteroid, a comet is laden with ice. And so once they get enough heat from the sun, the ice starts to evaporate. And that's why we see their signature tail. But this only happens once they reach as far in as Jupiter. So they're really hard to see before this, which is important as they also travel at velocities two to three times that of asteroids. So Halley's Comet, for example, has a velocity of around 55 kilometers per second. So... Doing some like simple back of the envelope calculations, Jupiter is 881 million kilometers away. So if a comet the size of Mount Everest was on an orbital path from the Oort cloud towards Earth, and we detected it once it was in the region of Jupiter, traveling at 55 kilometers per second, it would impact Earth in about six months. Say what? Say it again. It would impact Earth in about six months. Oh. That wait, can you what do you, what what's gonna impact Earth in six months? So if if, if if yeah if there's a if there's a comet that's yeah. on a what they call it's um a long what is it long period orbit yeah comes from the Oort cloud from into the, Oort. the solar system six months later boom we won't know so the Oort cloud is huge like there's such a huge distance but our detecting capabilities means we won't see that signature tail of the comet until it's far enough into the solar system that the heat from the sun 
will cause the ice to start melting and create the tail. And that happens when it's as close in as about Jupiter. So it's really hard to detect a comet before it reaches the region of Jupiter. Sounds like cancer. So if there is a comet that comes from the Oort cloud that is on an orbital path that brings it close to Earth or brings it to a collision course with Earth, we can't detect it until it's by Jupiter. And because comets travel so much faster than asteroids, the speed that it would be traveling by the time we detected at Jupiter, if it was on a collision course with Earth, means it would collide in six months. Which is the time that they said. In the movie, yeah. And do you reckon that's a result of the consultant? Yeah. Shit. Amy Mainzer, uh, um, she actually modeled the comet in the movie. Oh. And modeled it on a real comet. I think the main problem is that although an asteroid is unlikely because we, we understand the majority of them, comets we don't understand the majority of because they're they come from such a far distance away and it is unlikely that it will happen but it is a non-zero probability sure but that <laughs> she's just being safe i'm hearing you say like if this if that no if this, but like if, if you yeah but realistically yeah. think about this i'm just saying that like the movie itself when you look at it and you're like well that's not going to happen and you're like well it could actually very well very easily just happen tomorrow we'll be lucky we can say that it's unlikely we'll but be lucky. it could happen that's the way we go out we're lucky yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow mm. my question was going to be how does this make you feel but yeah you've just told me <laughs> We should be so lucky. Okay. All right, let's move on from that then. Um, in an interview, Ma- Amy Mainzier was asked what she hoped people would take from the movie. And her answer was that scientists are humans and that the process of science is a human process. We may sometimes have communication challenges, but we are trying and we are going to keep trying. So on that note, let's talk about our scientists. Mm. Um Let's start with Dr. Mindy, professor at um, University of Michigan, I believe it was, studying trace gases around dead stars. He hasn't published in a while, so you probably haven't heard of him, but then that doesn't matter. Sorry. Bless. He needs some media training, but uh, it all seems to work out for him in terms of his uh, profile. (laughs) Vegan, hungry for star, man. Vegan babe. Did you see that? (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah, that character. Can, can I give a rant about him? Yeah. Dr. Mindy. We were told nothing about it. This is kind of the same for Kate, but we didn't see him in his life at all. And apart from a reference to he said, I haven't published in a while, and he lists off a lot of his meds, we didn't really get a lot of fleshed out. Like his character really wasn't fleshed out at all. Like what's his deal? Where is he at in his career? Like what's he been going through? We hardly really got much with his family, with his sons. He just kind of like left them and then reunited with them at the end. We didn't see anything like his wife wasn't really a fleshed out character either. I thought he was just sort of like, we didn't get a lot, like we didn't know him very well. I didn't think. Uh, Apart from get, the getting to know you scene with the, yeah. the Mark Hamill. Again, all that, all that made us realize was that she is so much more going on than him or something. That was like the point of Uh, that. 
the thing is that didn't bother me at all okay, because fine. I just felt like the movie wasn't about him. The movie was wasn't about his journey as a scientist or his background as a scientist. It was about just the simple fact of he is a scientist who knows something and is trying to communicate it but doesn't have the skills to do that. He's not yeah. trained to do that. He's not worked as a science communicator, but now he has this responsibility and he's trying to figure out the best way to do it yep. and and I, I really kind of felt that from him. I felt that like he's not the person who should be doing this. And you see that when he's like having that panic attack in the bathroom. Like he's freaking out because he's not prepared for... Because he's not only like... And now has the weight and the responsibility of having to try to get other people to understand this. He's also living in that realisation of knowing what's coming. Understanding the weight of what's coming. And... And after that meeting at the White House, recognizing that no one's going to do anything about it. And it's just terrifying. Yeah. Like, how could you not be terrified every moment of the day? Yeah, I hear your point. Like that. Well, well, what we knew about him was what we needed to know about him just in terms of the story of the movie, I guess. Yeah. I'm just saying it would have carried more weight with the whole family thing if we had sort of seen a bit more into his inner life. That's all. But I hear oh, I think it would have just added an extra time on the movie that I didn't need. Yeah, I know. Fucking hell, man. <laughs> I, I, um, yeah, it was Do you long. think, though, I do really enjoy that breakdown interview that he has where he finally just like lets it all spew. But what I really enjoyed about that was I was going like, do you think that Leo had to use any form of acting skill for that breakdown? Or do you think he basically just delved into his own frustrations as an advocate for the environment and with the whole Trump administration and just let rip everything he's been thinking for years? the the last one the last bit yeah, yeah the daily rip one my favorite thing about that i guess it's just the director's choice is that they cut away from the scene before he finished just to let you know yeah. that nothing made a difference <clears throat> that it didn't matter it's like that when they cut away abruptly it's sort of a way to let you know that that what it's it doesn't matter like what you've just mm. seen <laughs> doesn't yeah. matter it's not, uh, yeah. <laughs> and it, that was the worst part. <laughs> was like, oh, he's just another person raving that's going to be sent with a bag on his head off the grid. And what yeah. they say, it was kind of, it was, it was tough. But I did like that scene until that point. I was like, fuck you guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, let's move into PhD candidate Dibiaski, Kate okay. Dibiaski, astronomy graduate student. Um, I love her. Mm -hmm. I love her as I love her as the as a PhD student. I love her character. I think she's great. I think she's perfect. What do you think? So apart from just the same, I would say the same thing as Dr. Mindy. Like we really knew nothing about her. <clears throat> like we we really didn't see her in her life. I think often, like it used to be with these movies, that you'd start off, if it was about the scientist, as opposed to like just the bit at the beginning of a disaster film where you meet the scientist and that's it, right? You'd meet mm. them at home, you'd meet them with your families, you'd kind of get to know them, you, you, you'd set up the character a little bit more, like Independence Day, movies that work pretty hard to very cleverly set people up so you care about them, and it didn't do that like, at all. Okay, fine. Um, but apart from that, yeah, I thought she was way, way cool. Like we could kind of get a sense of who she was from her dress and from everything Jennifer Lawrence did 
was sort of mm. enough to make conclusions about her, but she was just cool. I think See, I yeah Jennifer Lawrence I agree with did you a on great that. job with what yeah what she was I agree given. with you on that I disagree with you about the bit of the, but that's just because I just I didn't need to see a background I didn't need those boring scenes of learning about her life and her relationship with her okay. parents or well like I just don't need that information I just was like here's just two people that I've never met before because that's how you would meet these scientists in these world you wouldn't know about their backgrounds you would just meet them it's like here's somebody giving me information. And and what yeah. what am I, how am I going to judge them based on this this moment where I see them first? And yeah, mm. I just kind of yeah. But there's um there's two things that I want to bring up. <laughs> this, this one, this one is something that I take as a personal offense, and it's not about Kate, and it's not about Jennifer Lawrence in terms of like anything she did. It's about a response to it. Mm-hmm. There is an actual fucking article out there. An actual article that Netflix wrote on a blog talking about, is that how astronomers really dress? Totally. Talking about Katie Biaski's character. (laughs) Having like, oh, she's got nose piercings and she's got rings and she's wearing boots and she's jumpers. And I was just like, but I read this article and I was just looking at it and I was like, I am personally offended that you felt the need to write this fucking article to criticize whether I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm sitting... Sorry, I'm just, it just, no, it offended me. It offended me that we had to have an article about how she was dressed to determine whether that's what an astronomer would really look like based on her clothing choices. It's exactly what astronomers look like. That's exactly what astronomers look like. I was in the school of physics and astronomy. Astronomers are always the most punk out of anybody. They wear heavy boots. Their hair is all fucked and stuff. A lot of black, a lot of like, I'm sorry, Astronomers are punk as all hell. I don't know another word for it because I'm not, I don't know the thing, but yes, that's 100%. The thing is, as well, the majority of women in science, in terms of women in physics, the majority of them are in astrophysics. Like, that's just the truth. There's a lot of women in astrophysics and they're just the coolest. Astrophysics are, sorry, they're different things. Astronomy and astrophysics are very different. Astrophysics is more mathematical. Astronomy is more data, gazing, images. I'm just saying we just have to make the distinction okay, between okay. them. But um, like astronomy, <laughs> I mean, if you go to the School of Physics and you look at the departments that exist, where does astronomy fall under? Astrophysics the- department, right? Nope. Astrophysics is is the discipline of the maths department. And astronomy is a discipline of the physics department. Actually, they joined. They became the School of Physics and Astronomy. (laughs) Okay, it depends on what fucking university you're at. Sure does. (laughs) Yeah, so why are you... What the fuck is this? All right. Okay, we just had our first fight. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Say that again without burping. Okay. Okay, so... Frida and Abby... No, Frida and Abby have just had our first fight. On air, super embarrassing. <laughs> I didn't mean for that to happen. You are right. It, it's oh, you are definitely right. Um, oh my god, she just said I was right. You yeah, all yeah. Read it. Okay, That's fucking stupid. Moving for on. Sure. Just take a cup of oh. this, a sip of this water over here. Sorry, what, I'm what are we doing next? <laughs> um Okay, so do we have it? Do you have anything else? Do you have anything else you want to say about the handsome astronomer and the yelling lady? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, stuff for later, but um, 
a lot of the, yeah, they both did an awesome job. And, and my general comments is the characters weren't super fleshed out, but everything that we yeah. saw on screen, I bought it. Okay. So lastly, we have Dr. Oglethorpe. And he is the, to me, he's the in-between. He's a scientist, but he's worked within the government system for most of his career. So while he sees and understands the threat, he's the one who is least surprised by the reaction. He seems like resigned to inaction from the start. And there's some hope there that the government will see the gravity of the situation. But deep down, he just knows or at least senses that it's not going to go well. Whereas the other two are like completely incredulous at the sit tight and assess. And Oglethorpe <laughs> is just a bit. Yeah, I expected that. How do we feel about it? I really liked him. I really I love what you just said, because, yes, he's it, he's more resigned. Um, but he was still on their side. I love that he was like fully on their side, fully mm. a scientist at the end of the day. I love that he came out fighting for them and then he was with them at the end of the day. I thought that was really beautiful. And I also saw an article with the actor, beautiful article, definitely on like a Netflix website, which is this starting to piss me off. Netflix having their own websites for their own articles for their own <laughs> movies. So fuck off. <laughs> Capitalists. But he was saying that he felt like he was, firstly, he's been typecast so much as a black person, you know, playing like someone on death row. And he's like so excited to be given someone who's there for his intelligence. So that's one element, but also mm. to be able to make scientists like kind of sexy and funny yeah. and fun. And I thought he did a fantastic job at creating this character that was yes resigned yes over it but yes passionate but cute but funny but friendly uh, and it's such a good example do you know what's actually like super sweet about what you just said there is that adam mckay when he wrote the script he specifically wrote kate dibiaski for jennifer lawrence because he just knew he had there's some quote I think I had somewhere where it's like he said that like nobody does kind of cutting truth as good as she uh, yeah. but he also specifically wrote Dr. Oglethorpe for Rob Morgan ah so it's just yeah it's very sweet that you've just said that that's how he felt about it I just love that it's like it was written for him I just think yeah. that's really lovely I, I'm amazed awesome cool well so in the movie, Dr. Oglethorpe is the head of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. And as the title says, it's a very real place. Um, it is a real place. Is it? Yes, it is a real place. And their NASA website states that. So this is a couple of bullet points on what their role is. Number one, to provide early detection of potentially hazardous objects, including near Earth objects, particularly with a size large enough to cause significant damage to Earth. Number two to track and characterize these potentially hazardous objects and issue warnings of the effects of possible impacts. Number three, to study strategies and technologies for mitigating impacts. And number four, to play a leading role in the coordinating in, sorry, to play a leading role in coordinating the US government when planning a response to an actual impact threat. Now, the Near-Earth Object Surveyor spacecraft is a survey mission that's due to be launched in 2026. And this mission will search for these objects so that we can track and prepare should there be any orbits that would lead to an impact event. Mm -hmm. And it's all kind of connected. And this is all connected then back to Amy Mainzer because that's one of the one of the main kind of aspects of her role in the NEOWISE um, in terms of being the PI for NEOWISE. Uh, so she actually modeled the comet in the movie and she models it after the real comet Neowise. And comet Neowise was discovered in March of 2020. And it then had a close approach to Earth four months later. 
So that shows you that it is very, very real that we would discover a comet and that it would be near us very quickly. 2020. So the point of all of it is that we don't know if there is an object that's on a collision course. But as I said earlier, it's a non-zero probability. So while we have the time, we should be developing the technology required to deflect or destroy such a threat. And in some ways we are. There's this thing called the DART mission. And it's a mission that's currently on its way towards an asteroid called Didymos. Stop. And Really? What? Yeah. Okay. Wow. So Didymos is an asteroid that doesn't pose any threat to us, but it has a small moon-like object that's orbiting it. Okay. And DART, which stands for Double Asteroid Redirection Test, will collide with this small object. Small object is still 160 meters um, so sci- so basically it will collide with it to try to deflect it off its course and then scientists will analyse what the effect of the collision has had on the orbit and velocity. <gasps> um, so like that's not going to knock a nine kilometre wide comet hurtling towards us, but at least it's a proof of concept for deflection techniques. Hey, they're testing it out. Yeah. So they just tested out at non-threatening asteroids. That's what this defence, planetary defence system is doing. Yeah. Hell Yeah. <laughs> I love it. They're like testing out this stuff just in case it happens. They'll have tested it. Well, yeah, that's so that's the thing. So it's good that we're testing things. But another kind there is a problem. Okay. And one one problem is like so the deflection technique like will work in certain circumstances, but if we did have a massive comet hurtling towards us at, at high speeds, deflection probably isn't going to work and we probably would want to destroy it even though that would create a lot of small objects heading towards us but it's it's kind of a trade-off it's what's going to be the best thing to do but once the dangerous object is detected we would need to determine what is needed to build a, sca- a spacecraft to deal with it so it's like we detect it and then it's okay now we need to send something up there to either deflect it or destroy it how much does it need does it need nuclear power like how many nukes does it need but like just so many questions that revolve around what the object is that's coming towards us the size of it and all of that that means that we can't pre-build the rockets for it so until we know the details of the project we don't know what we'll need and unfortunately for us, our current technology means that it takes at least three to four years to build a spaceship. <laughs> and it took and one this year. Yes. Brings me to billionaires. And my conflicting feelings about what they're doing. Because on the one hand, the only reason that we now have reusable rockets is because of SpaceX. The commercial desire to mine asteroids would allow for the development of the technology required to tackle the problem shown in the movie but their personal financial motivations and desire for world domination are super repellent to me. So let's talk Peter Isherwell, the movie's job, Musk, Zuckerberg, love child. What are your thoughts on Isherwell? Bash, their influence on the world, political motivations. Frida, I give you the floor for your billionaire comments. I think your segue was really perfect to talk about billionaires and feeds right into my opinion about them. Because you're saying it takes three to four years to build the spacecraft, no, no, no. And now we're going to talk about billionaires because that's exactly how I feel about it. Something that should take three to four years with, you know, quite a lot of people on the job, etc., etc. These billionaires think 
that just by having a lot of money, you can kind of do anything, right? Like we can do it because we're rich. And I think what this is, is this sort of idea of the free market, the free market that a lot of people believe in. If you have a free market open to anyone, healthy competition, you know, rich people getting in there, competing, producing things, that that just means we will produce the best possible thing. And I think at this point, people should know that that maybe isn't true. And actually, in order to produce the best, you need to have the brightest minds all together in an environment which is catering to evidence-based solutions and is transparent and collaborative and inspiring and open in order to create the best possible thing. And it really fucked me off, this representation of the billionaire, which is totally fucking accurate. Coming and being like, I can do it. Why? I'm a billionaire. And everyone's told me I'm a genius my whole life. I'm so arrogant. I'm basically crazy. You're, you're yeah. a madman at this point. You're Lex Luthor. Money is all you need. It really isn't all you need. You need cooperation. You need institutions, collaboration. You need transparency, peer review, blah, 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 blah. He really pissed me off. He reminded me of Elon Musk going in there when those Thai boys were in the, the cave. And everyone, and he sort of was like, I can take it. You know. Yeah. Fuck, you know, they're just, it's it's the free market gone absolutely mental. I I take your point and I see where you're coming from. I, I, I only have, there's only one thing that I have to say really in kind of contrast to it. And it's just that like, I just don't think that we can deny the fact that when we have government institutions that whose role is to do certain, like to create certain technologies and things like that, when they don't get the funding to do it, like we, we cannot negate the fact that SpaceX gave us reusable rockets. Like it just did. Right. And the what that does in freeing things up is like it's it's wonderful and that's because nasa weren't given the funding or the scope to be able to develop or do things beyond so i do think that having people be innovative and come up with solutions to ideas and technology in industry is important yeah i don't know do you think that's a fair point or yeah i think it's a totally fair point you are right that innovation and and you know external to the government is important with in conjunction with collaboration and transparency and firing your experts is not a very good sign it's really hard to work all this out how to have Mm. the money and the science together in a way that makes people comfortable and produces the best possible things I think some countries are better at than others America's got obviously huge American industry is obviously great and produced the greatest inventions and has yes the best medicine and the best doctors and the best of everything obviously coming from America we know that I mean uh, you know up until recently let's just say so you know I don't want to shit on shit on this but yeah it was very uncomfortable mm. watching the billionaire sort of like predictably fuck things up for everybody with 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 their arrogance and everybody's trust in the money yeah, and I do, I, I do have to say just, just on, on that comment of like, you know, America having the best of everything, it doesn't fucking work if the people of America don't have access to it. So that's for sure. What's the fucking of point? Of course. Um, 
Okay, so just to interject very slightly before we get into our last section, uh, I do feel like I should mention about the asteroid mining because it happened and it was a thing. Uh But it's very hypothetical science. Aspects are being researched, but it's not been tried. It's not been tested. Uh, There's a line there where Dr. Inez comes in and says about phase fission reactions in CERN that can splinter the comet into smaller pieces, steered and accelerated into the ocean. And they talk about um, deploying micro-targeted quantum fission explosives. Uh, I don't think these things exist. Um, But I guess, like, you know, there is research, obviously, into fission reactions and, and things like that. So I guess the point is... I guess the point of it is the failure of the bash launch is based on the fact that they're using science that has not been tried and tested and has not been commented on, reviewed and tested and checked by external scientists. And he fired all of the experts that queried it. But in terms of actually mining of asteroids and comets, uh, the general idea seems to be that asteroids have mineral raw materials like metals, like likely the metals mentioned in the movie, whereas comets are useful for their water ice. So thinking about the future of space travel in terms of having stations, like if you want to create a station on the moon, if you want to create a station on Mars, the idea is that comets can provide a lot of liquid hydrogen and oxygen, which Mm -hmm. translates to rocket fuel. So if we could figure out how to mine both asteroids and comets, they would be used for travel throughout the solar system, providing fuel stations and you can take the metals and materials that exist on asteroids to use to build structures. So it may be possible to mine near Earth asteroids, but we're nowhere near achieving that. Um, but I guess it would likely probably be a billionaire who achieves it rather than the governments of the world because they're going to want the money. Because, <laughs> yeah, they're looking for more. Okay, that's interesting. It's interesting to know that they kind of switched around. It's actually asteroids that have those metals. Yeah. Okay. I think it's like because the science is correct of the comet coming in. But then, yeah, it's, it's I guess, like finding the that, that motivation for Isherwell is going to be based on the materials. But that would realistically be more the, the rock-based things in the asteroid. Anyway, I would like to talk a little bit about hacks. Because having somebody stand up there and say, I'm a scientist, everything's fine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, it's just that weird thing where it's like, okay, but, you know, what kind of scientist are you? Where do you go? They do it with Dr. Calder. Yes. It's the appeal to authority, logical fallacy. That's all. Mm -hmm. That's all. It's a logical fallacy. I mean, next. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, there's one process that you go through in order to have your uh, ideas verified. That's the one process that is the scientific method. That's it. Mm. I don't care. Like when they say I'm a scientist or I used to work in NASA, it's just an appeal to authority and that's a logical fallacy. Well, that's it. And, And that kind of, it connects me into what they do in the movie is there's a moment where they're saying Michigan State. And they're like, I'm sorry, what Michigan State? Let's get some Ivy Leaguers. Oh, that was terrible. And it just, what it does is it shows an absolute lack of understanding and the value that lies in status and not knowledge or experience. Because the thing is, it's like this. If you don't want to go into academia and you want to go into industry, take the position at MIT. 
because industry will only care about the name of the university you went to. Industry, that's right. If you want to go into academia, take the position at that like middle of the desert university that no one's really heard of, but has the research group that is the best in the field. Mm -hmm. And that's the truth of it. And people don't understand that. They don't understand. They expect that every university that is like Ivy League has this top name means that those researchers are the top of the field. And that's not the truth. It's not at all. It actually, to me, I know that it's exciting to be at a good university, but I, I didn't relate to that at all. Like, where, and again, that's the appeal to authority. I'm a scientist mm-hmm. at X university. I say, and where have you published? What's the quality of your work? How recently mm-hmm. have you been published? What do your contemporaries think about you? Because that's very telling. I couldn't give a stuff where you're from. I does, if you're in academia, you know it doesn't matter. It does yeah. not matter. But that's the problem. If you're not in academia, you don't realize it. And it is about that that prestige of where you went. How, how do people identify? How do people connect to you by looking at the titles? By looking at like, you know, that. And that's what they do. They look at them and they go like, Michigan State, we're not listening to you. We need Ivy Leaguers. And it's like, that doesn't mean that they're going to be better. It doesn't mean that they're going to do a better job. It's total bullshit. It's total just, bullshit. It's so frustrating as well. Like, it's really frustrating. Yeah. yeah. But so to kind of come to the end of the episode, Adam McKay is quoted as saying, this film is for you, the scientists. We want you to know that some of us do hear you and do want to help fight science denialism. Thank you. So I know I do feel like I'm like, thank you, Adam. Thank you, man. You made me cry with it. Like I, I cried twice in this fucking movie. But how did how did it feel to you? Just this whole we just we just need to talk like we've talked a lot in drips and drabs as we go through about like kind of science communication and aspects to it and how we how we work in the process and stuff. But it is one of the biggest challenges that we face trying to get people to believe you and trust you when the tools you have to explain it require a base knowledge that people don't have. Um, it is one of the hardest things. Um, there's a great moment in the movie, which I really feel it was, it was such a good sci-com moment in the first interview where they talk about that she was studying um, um, supernovas. Supernova, yeah. And so of course that, and then, and then, so he says she was studying supernova and then, you know, but then discovered a comet and then she redressed it as an exploiting star. And I love that when she she was like exploiting star, I was like, that was a perfect psychom moment. Yeah. But then of course, that was the bit that they focused on, not the fact that they discovered a comet. So I thought that whole interaction is such an utter failure of psych science communication. And I thought that was kind of brilliant. I yeah, we we are both obviously science communicators and working on our craft constantly. It's what we're doing here, girl. Yeah. Day we're doing here, week <laughs> yes. in, week out. I've been science communicating since the beginning of my uh, like life in science. I've been I've done workshops for students and judged science communication as well. Um, it's always been my thing. Um, it is so hard, 
especially when you get to, we're not talking about entertainment, when you get to communicating to other people not in your fields, especially I'm in medicine, and I'm in a certain field of medicine where let's just say the doctors in that field feel a certain way about themselves Mm -hmm. and don't like being made to feel stupid. So how do you, the, the balance between I would like to inform you of something with utter respect for the fact that you are in the height of your powers intellectually and not make you at any point feel confused so that the next time you see me, you feel good about yourself. You don't feel like that's the person that made me stupid. You feel like that's the person that may help me understand something which made me feel even smarter. And it's that is real psychom. It's how to talk to people to make them feel good about what you're communicating to them. And honestly, it's a talent you have it or you don't and honestly it comes to, and you you work on the craft but what it is at its core is emotional intelligence and then you work mm. the craft but it is an emotional intelligence it's reading the room and it's using empathy and compassion and sometimes you can't yeah. be fucked dealing with it it's too much work because you have to put aside ego absolutely yeah, it's a weird, there's a weird kind of complex. I feel like there's three types of people in science. There's the there's the good science communicators who understand exactly what you said. You know, find find the way to communicate what you need to communicate, the important points. But then there's the ones that, yeah, they want to, they just want to show off. They're like, here's all the big words. Here's all the things to make me sound like I'm super smart because I want you to, my aim here is to make you think I'm super smart. And then there's the people that are like Dr. Mindy, who yeah. just don't know how to speak about science without using the language of science. They don't know how to do that. As you said in that interview, like he doesn't know how to, oh, I should say exploding star, not supernova because people don't know what a supernova is. Like, and he does it in that meeting with the president where he's like, um, using Gauss's method of orbital determination and average astrometric uncertainty of 0.4 arc seconds. And it's like, nobody fucking knows what you're saying, mate. Nobody understands that. You You cannot. You like, but he thinks I have to be precise. I have to because he's used to communicating his science to scientists. And he's right because, and and in a similar way, like they have to say we are completely certain, even though it's ninety seven point three certain or whatever it is. That's another way that you can't win. If you Mm. said the numbers, which equate to absolutely certain in English. Absolutely, 97. Okay, there's 3%, but that's absolutely certain. So that's another way where, you, where like the exact science is also not going to be helpful. So you have to use the English translation of the exact science, which then people say, okay, so you're not, you didn't exactly mean that. But I do, but you have to trust me. It just comes back to trusting yeah. scientists. It just comes back to what society, what kind of society are we? Are we, are, are we the kind of society which treats someone like Einstein like a fucking rock star when he arrives at the airport and you see those videos of people, throngs of people throwing themselves at him? Or are we a society which hallows really wealthy people? Are we, are we this society or are we that society? And the fact is, we are not any more the kind of society which has the reverence for our head scientists and we don't trust their words. We force them to have to do that work and therefore we can't win. While we chase money the way we're chasing it, 
instead of respecting science and technology, then we lose. It's true. We revere science fiction as as just for entertainment. We watch these I, these fantastical ideas of these futures that we could have with this amazing technology and like the whole the whole thing of Star Trek where like we, we don't have wars anymore and people love it. People adore these television shows and these movies and and these depictions of the future like mm-hmm. utopia that we could have. But when we live in our daily society, we don't do anything to allow ourselves to move towards that. We don't move towards the people and the discoveries and the work and the funding, the requirements, everything that are needed to be able to move forward, to be able to have that type of a future. We don't. Everything you just said is exactly true. We sit there and we look at the people and we watch the news roll out with stories of Musk, stories of Bezos, like just these people with all this money. And, and then we, we want it. Money. We want the money. We want the money to be able to do the thing. And it's like, yeah, Trump <sighs> became the president because he's a millionaire. People were like, well, money. And we're just so obsessed with money. And we used to have a different society, which was into science and technology. And we just yeah. don't anymore. So things are shit and the scientists are all sweating and panicked all the time. Yeah. And poor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Academia does not pay people. Okay, so ending ending this episode, Adam McKay wanted to portray the challenges faced by scientists and I felt it so hard. The exhaustion of the mania, the knowledge that we're destroying ourselves and allowing the people with the money to ruin this amazing place. It's not like there's anyone else like us out there. We are singular, we are unique, we are wonderful and we are all going to die. Thank you. Frida, what's your what the fuck moment? <laughs> I forgot to write it down. Oh, mate. <laughs> I know I did it with the both of them. <laughs> it's probably the general stealing the snacks. <laughs> oh, I forgot to talk about the general and the snacks. <laughs> but it's hard again. It's like the tropes. It's hard because the tropes, they they, they did the work for yeah. us to find the tropes and then this what the fuck the general and we never saw him again by the way no. ever at any point i just it was so brazen he just so walks good. out they charge you an arm and a leg for this crap it's i like, loved it he thought about it it's not like someone offered him money and he just took it he thought about it he knew he walked in and yeah. then what one of my absolute favorite thing about kate is that she's fixated on it throughout the whole movie at the end of the movie she's still talking about i mean like he's a four-star general <laughs> And I just thought it was such a wonderful thing with her that it was almost like her anxiety meant that like she needed to regain some control. And so she like fixated on this problem. And if she could solve why he charged them for the snacks, then that would make everything else fall into place and make sense. So she was just like stuck to this whole thing. I know. I love that it kept coming up. It was great. Yeah. But my real, real what the fuck really, because that, that's sort of like giving, you know, making the movie yeah. was I think Leo's wife. Mindy's wife, the way she was written, the way she was portrayed, that whole awful scene, like it's just terrible. Him not saying anything, him not being able to say anything and do anything for the mother of his like 
you know, adult sons. It's not like, it's like Mm. being by his side the whole time. I just, I think, I think just that'll lead into our next uh, part over here. But I thought that that to me, I was like, what the fuck? And then then the fact that he just walks through the door at the end and she's like, yes, come in. You know, I kind of liked that at the end there because I felt like they had all just said, we're just going to put everything else aside. We're all going to die today. So I'm just not, I don't have the energy for anything other than to spend a moment mm-hmm. with the people that I love. Yeah, and Whatever that was shit has that, happened. Yes, it was the right ending, yeah. but of course that his privilege as the man who walked away yeah. being able to be like, "Oh, you know what? Let's put it all behind us." And yeah. it's like <laughs> <laughs> got some feels. Okay, my what the fuck. I can't believe my what the fuck has not come up already. I was really prepared for it to come up. So all it's telling me is, did Frida turn the TV off again as soon as the movie ended and didn't watch the credits? Oh, I didn't watch the credits. (laughs) Oh, uh, I watched everything spinning into space. Yeah. All the different objects. Yeah. Yeah. And then you turned it off. Yeah. Yeah. So my what the fuck is the final scene, which happens during the credits, which is the billionaire spaceship. Oh, he forgot the, how, forgot the sun. However many years oh. into the future arrives on a planet. The thing is, it's super funny for the movie, but I just felt like it diluted the message a bit and the ending is way more powerful without having this final scene. But I'm not going to say anything about it. You have to look it up right now and watch it. Oh my God. They're all naked. Oh, you found it. I found photos. And she's still in her glasses as well. Yeah. And she gets eaten by an animal She has a tramp stamp as well. When, when, you, when you see, like, you only see her, like, the nakedness from the back and she's got a big tramp stamp across her across the base of her back that's great oh brilliant it's definitely the trump equivalent they were very good at making like if it was a female trump equivalent she'd be like a yeah. tramp stamp smoker yeah <laughs> no one cares well it was just like look it was a funny little mid-credit thing and it was like oh that's kind of funny but it it kind of for me it just it just took the poignancy away from the ending of the movie the fact that like the rich people escaped it because they can't the whole point of this movie is the rich cannot escape it they're not immune to the event we do not have the technology for them to escape it's entirely fantastical so i just felt like all the rich people should have died with everyone else to really highlight the fact that this is a problem for everyone and just because you have money doesn't mean you can actually fucking get away from it so Amen. yeah that's my what the fuck that's right you, you didn't you gave the wrong lesson to the wrong people yeah yeah okay final verdicts did the movie pass the sam's test uh yeah yes yes it did okay so did it pass here comes the science well yeah yes right yes yes it does what i really enjoyed about it was there's there's another just a, a last quote from adam mckay which which i think is very true for this movie he says i also hope hollywood is learning how to tell climate stories that matter Instead of stories that create comforting distance from the grave danger we're in via unrealistic techno fixes for unrealistic disaster scenarios. That's Wait for fine, next term. But <laughs> I, I, I hear that, but but I didn't know I wasn't um <clears throat> He created his own distance by making it satirical and jokes the whole way through. That's also a form of distance. Because at the end of the day, it's a film. 
So, you know, the only way not to create emotional distance is to go to a IPCC or whatever a conference. Mm. <laughs> this is a film. He had his own ways of creating distance. Yeah, but I mean, I take the distance part out of it. The part that I really took from that was about movies generally using unrealistic technological fixes for unrealistic disaster scenarios. And that's what we do. That's what's constantly happening. It's completely like just fantastical and like, oh, let's put a net of satellites around the world and control the climate. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, no, you can't fucking do that. Yes, you are correct. I agree with that completely. And, but here's what I want to say, and please don't cut this out. I want you to include this. <clears throat> you don't have to be that literal to create a strong emotional message. They were too literal, too heavy handed in trying to deliver the emotional message, which is an important emotional message, but it was way too heavy. And I felt like they delivered it poorly and it was very clunky. And you can be more abstract. Um, less literal, less heavy, and deliver a more powerful emotional message that actually has you walking away from the film, feeling something inside you that, you know, drives you. And this movie, it it laid it down like a ton of bricks. And um, I didn't come away personally feeling this emotionally altered by it. And I... 100% 100% disagree with everything you just said <laughs> and that's because I fine. did come away feeling emotionally affected by it no worries it really 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 did hit it hard for me in terms of what they were trying to say and I understand where you're coming from and I see this like a lot of what that's a, a lot of the same thing as what a lot of the critics have said you know like oh it's too obvious it's too this it's too that and it's like but movies have different styles and this is what this movie style is. Fair enough. Final verdict then. So I guess, I guess uh, we know your score is not going to be about that high. Well, no, 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 no. I'm giving it a three and a half because I recognize that it, you know, from the perspective of our science movie, it, it, it should be high scoring. Um, so three and a half for me is a decent, like it's a good science movie with good science and good science representation. Um, and that's, that's sort of, you know, what I give it. I just, I find it fascinating because to me, this is the most science movie that we've done. Yeah. Like as in it has the most, it is very much entirety is a science movie. Every single thing is about about science, science communication. It's the most relevant to our lives. Well, I want you to feel I, the message the way I felt I it, Frida. I want you to feel it. This is the perfect movie for us because I love our impasse where I'm like, I acknowledge I all the bits are there. But from the film point of view, it, yeah. sto- I'm, it, it stops me. And, and you we like can't a different see. type of movie to me. Well, that's the thing. We, we know see, that. We like, we've had these conversations eye. before. No, we don't. It, is it? I, it's in my brain that time where when we talked about Captain America and you went, but is it cinema? <laughs> But I love it. I wanted to jump through the screen. We can talk about this forever, but just as an example, yes, all the bits were there, but these scientists weren't in my mind real people. We didn't know anything about them. So is this a real representation of science and scientists? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I didn't see their heart. Like when I think of Jeff Goldblum in The Fly and I gave a a, a five, because I saw his spirit. 
His spirit because the was, movie was about him. This, this movie isn't spirit, about their right. personal lives. The spirit this of movie a is about their communication. The movie is about them communicating. So on paper, we lived science. in the same country, Frida. On paper, <laughs> on paper, good scientists, yes. But did, did was it in essence in in the in their in their emotional lives? All these other parts, like there's more to science representation God. than just paper on paper. Words, words. This, it, you know, what's it? Ah, the fly. I think you're being overly the harsh fly. and overly critical. And because I think that you I'm, have a prejudice I'm sometimes with down. movies that you go into it already wanting to be critical <laughs> and you don't open yourself up to everybody it. else likes. No. I'm no, giving everybody. a five. Five big I ass did. comments. <laughs> I fucking loved this movie. Absolutely. Five, five, five. <laughs> Let's the move fly. on. Let's the move the fuck on fast. <laughs> we fought so much. It's hilarious. We fought a lot. We fought. We've been going for ages. It's... I knew. I <laughs> knew this movie was going to be polarizing for us. I, I didn't know how much it was going to be. But Shit. okay, come on. Let's move on. Next movie. All right. It's <laughs> Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, I've been waiting for you to pick because that. Because I was going to do that in my next after this when it was like a cleanse my soul thing because it is like yeah. a, just one of those movies. But personally, this film was a little bit too distressing for me. So I do need a movie now that I'm just going to be like beautiful so eternal sunshine of the spotless mind okay <laughs> i was upset i mean i've never seen it because it sounds like the most depressing movie of existence and i've never wanted to see it <laughs> so oh yay! interesting interesting i'm excited oh yeah great, great okay great. all right eternal sunshine of the spotless mind in two weeks time I believe next week in our docu mini series is Icarus. Woo. So have a listen to that. Um, yeah. So subscribe, follow, rate something, whatever. Just things, things that people say at the end of podcasts. Thank you for listening. You can get in contact with us on scienceatthemovies.gmail.com or you can hit us up on Instagram at scienceatthemovies. We are open to taking recommendations should you like to suggest some movies to us. Um, thank you very much for listening and goodbye. Bye. Do you think if we were in the same room we would have gone for each other? <laughs> Cut fucking everything. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>